Well, uh, I'm excited to be back, back in the saddle, so to speak. Here, our family was able to take a little vacation last week after school let out, and we, we got to go to Winthrop, which is always an awesome place. We got a great week of vacation, and yeah, whoop, whoop. Uh, we do lots of mountain biking and fishing and hiking and stuff outdoors, so um, that is truly a beautiful place and fills my tank every time I'm there. Um, this kind of is the official start of summer. Actually, it's still two days away, right? The 5th of July is when it starts here in the Pacific Northwest. And um, on cue, things clattered over for the wonderful 4th, 4th of July weekend. But I'm not complaining. Summer's going to be here soon. And uh, we've got change. Summertime is always one of those, um, it's a different season for us at church. You know, we, t- we take a break. Uh, we tell our volunteers uh, and a lot of the ministries that usually happen during nine months of the year during the school year to take the summer off. Um, you know, I wish I could say that we had power and control over that, but the truth is people vacation a ton. If you're new to the Pacific Northwest, um, we get like a two-month window to just soak all of our vitamin D in for the whole year, and so we do that. Uh, people are kind of in and out a lot, and so we just decided to embrace it as a church body. And you're going to even notice some, some changes physically to our building. We were supposed to have the roof replaced in June, and you all know how that turned out. So now it's going to be in July sometime, so we'll, we'll have some you know, light construction happening during one of these weeks. Uh, also, this is a time for Lisa to kind of um, roll her sleeves up and make some changes to the way things look. And uh, top on the list is the foyer. The foyer is going to have a, a new look at some time over the summer. So you might go on vacation and come back. And you'll be like, what happened? And it's going to be a good happen. One of the shifts that we want to make as a congregation, and these are just kind of like, okay, so how does that actually, you know, we use these ideals, these aspirations. Like, we, we, we want to shift from a church that's more like a presentation. You know, hey, you come to church and you see this thing that happens, this event that happens on a Sunday morning. We want to shift gears more towards relationships. And, and we've already been doing that. But we actually want that shift to happen in the way things look. And so whether it's furniture, uh, whether it's uh, colors or different other things physically in our, our space, we're trying to lean that direction. And the, and the idea is participation. Like how do we become a church body that participates in worship on Sunday morning and in the stuff that happens uh, during the week and volunteering in the lives of each other, like that's the body of Christ in action. That's who we want to be. Well, we're starting a new series in Colossians. And uh, Colossians has always had a special place in my heart. I think it started out uh, when I was younger and I was, you know, just like starting to read the Bible. And this was a really short book of the Bible. I, I felt so proud of myself because I actually could read the whole thing front to back. And there are some scriptural gems in the heart of this letter to the Colossians. And God's spoken to me through those gems during some re- really pivotal times in my life. And so it's, it's always been one of my favorite books. And so this sermon series that we're going to be on uh, in July and part of August here, it's a slightly different approach for the summer too. And we've been preaching through some like really broad themes in the last six months where Jesus says we're looking at the saying some of the uh, i am sayings of jesus during easter and then the kingdom is talking about the kingdom of god and the holy spirit last month and in pastor talk those are known as topical sermon series 
And for the month of July here, at least, we're going to move into more of an expository. Yeah, that doesn't sound like a very good word, does it? Um, we're going to move into a different style of preaching. So this is like a book study. It's a Bible, more of a Bible study approach. And so stylistically, you'll notice that difference. And I'm always surprised. Like, I mean, there are people who are like, you should preach like that all the time. And, you know, I'm like, yes, you should. But sometimes it comes from like, there is a one way to do things kind of approach. And our message as the body of Christ never changes. But sometimes our methods do, or our methods should. And so different learning styles, different people, different approaches. Uh, we're going to kind of shift gears this summer. Well, in the book of Colossians, Paul begins his letter in verse 2, saying, To God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. So in this very, you know, flowery introduction. The Apostle Paul uh, is introducing himself, and he's doing that because he sent this letter to a group of people he had never met. So they had never met face-to-face. They'd only heard of one another, and he's writing this letter. And you could imagine if you were going to write a letter to someone uh, in that circumstance, you'd want to encourage them. Uh, You'd want to strengthen their faith in Christ. So you're probably going to focus on the major things, like just the essentials. And Colossians is that. It's short, sweet, and emphatically to the point in many cases. And so, again, these are people he's never met. He addresses them as holy and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. That's quite a compliment to people who are newer to faith in Jesus, to people that you've never met. And it makes me wonder, what makes a person holy? What makes a person holy? You know, we're tempted to call someone holy because of what they do, how they act that kind of makes them stand out from everyone else. And that is in line with holy's basic meaning, which means to be set apart. And if you're thinking, well, that's what it means to be holy, I would say you are not wrong. But you also may not be entirely right. You know, as we'll learn, the Colossians are under some cultural pressures. You know, Just the place where they live and the people that they know and the world that they kind of swim in. I mean, there's some pressures, some currents heading against them uh, as they start to follow Jesus. And there are certain activities that some people in the church are engaged with that would make your Puritan grandmother very uncomfortable, okay? Uh, Not just the grandmas, but actually uh, uh, many people uncomfortable. And these were just habits, routines that tainted and damaged their soul, There were things that, uh, you know, we always think of these in the big categories of sins that people do, but they're also just like, they're just a bad habit. You know, our reactions are, you know, we we get angry. We we, uh, use words in anger. We say things to people or about people that aren't necessarily true. I mean, we tell stuff. Maybe we don't flat out lie, but we're just kind of intentionally inaccurate, right? I'm never... 
I've never, never done that in my life, right? But these are all things that pull us away from God. They harm our relationships with others. And yet, Paul addresses them from the get-go as holy. So what makes a person holy is their relationship to a holy God. It's not their personal moral achievements, as we might say. The stuff that we associate with holiness is actually a response. A response as a result of our relationship to God. Um, it's, It's being in and around the transformational presence of our Father. And so all of the stuff that we associate with holiness is really important. In fact, Paul talks about it as, hey, you've got to it's like you're taking off your old clothes and leave that stuff behind you. It's the difference between death and new life. It's the difference between living in this old broken world that just is kind of swirling down the toilet and the new creation, the new kingdom of Jesus that God is establishing here on earth. This is what Paul wants to focus on. He wants to focus on this new creation that we can find in King Jesus. And so here at Cascade Covenant, you know, we say that we want to become God's holy people who are generous, joyful, and just. And this is something we aspire to become. And I admit that maybe it's a bit misleading in my definition of holiness. You know, it's through our faith in Jesus, our relationship with God. He's already made us holy. That's God's grace to us. So what does it mean to live in response to this grace. What does it mean uh, to see, like, how do we become God's holy people and see that as an invitation? This is something that because of our relationship with God, we already are, but it's also something that we live into. So Paul continues in chapter 1, verse 2, grace and peace to you from God our Father, He says, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel. Well, this is really where Paul starts to shine. And I know I might sound like Captain Obvious here. He's a brilliant writer. And remember, he's never met these people. They came to know who Jesus Christ is through the work of one of Paul's uh, associates. His name is Epaphras. He's actually mentioned in this letter a couple times. And um, he's the one who brought them news of the gospel found in Jesus. In fact, at the close of this letter, Paul writes, he's he's saying this of Epaphras, this um, co-worker of his, He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. So that phrase, matured and fully assured, you know, it makes it sound like, maybe reading between the lines, that there's some doubt there, like they're immature and not so sure about Jesus. So he's praying that they would rise up, become mature and fully assured in Christ. See, Paul wants them to be clear on a couple points, namely who they are in God's eyes and 
whose they are. Maybe in the eyes of the world. But like, who do you belong to? And whose are you? Paul wants them to know that they belong to King Jesus. He's their Lord. Jesus is Lord, not a guy named Caesar. It wasn't just these Greek and Roman influences that were affecting the Colossians. There was a weird Judaizing element too. You see, they started following the Jewish Messiah, and because of that, they found people pressuring them to also follow the law of Moses, like all good Jews did. And Paul felt compelled to spell this all out. There's a big difference. And so if you're the Colossians, it had to be touching to hear that so many people were praying for you. You know, uh, I've, we feel the same way when you hear another person is praying for you. It's, it's pretty moving. And in fact, it's, you know, it's casually to say, hey, I'm praying for you. And you send the little prayer icon emoji, right? But, you know, this is something that we take seriously. It's not just a, a casual thing. I, I try and be careful. If I say that to someone, then I actually follow through actually mean it, that I'm going to pray for you. I have a few uh, friends of mine, close friends, that I'm blessed with. They periodically reach out to me, and uh, it's always humbling when that happens. I was like, man, are you, like, I feel like such a terrible person when I get these texts, like, hey, I'm praying for you today, <laughs> right? But I, I'm always overwhelmed. I'm like, wow, that's incredible. Thank you. And, you know, I'll always send them like, oh, here's a, a couple big prayers for me, you know, uh, an end to climate change, and uh, maybe the Packers will win the Super Bowl this year. Those are my prayer requests, right? I'm just kidding. Uh, no, I'm always really humbled when they, when they ask that, and I, I take some time to give them a couple things. And I know, uh, because, you know, once a month, once every six weeks, another text again, hey, thinking about you today, praying for you, is there anything in specific? And I don't know why it catches me by surprise, but it does. It's humbling. I need that prayer. And so Paul very intentionally says here, um, well, actually, he kind of casually slips it in. Verse 3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Uh, later on in this opening chapter, he says, and for this reason, since the day we heard about you, We've not stopped praying for you. I know there's more to prayer than just this type of intercession, you know, where we're, we're thinking of someone or that maybe it's the Holy Spirit prompts us. Uh, that happens all the time. People out of the blue that you have and you're like, why am I thinking about them? Well, maybe it's the Holy Spirit and we just offer them up in prayer or it's people specifically that we've sent the emoji icon, you know, a prayer icon to. I'm praying for you. And we're reminded throughout our day and our week and even our month to continue praying for that, for that person. And uh, if you've never gotten in that habit, you'd be surprised what happens in your own soul when you wrestle in prayer for another Christian. When you are praying for them to stand firm, as Paul says here, in God's will. To be mature, whatever that looks like to be fully assured, mature, fully assured in Christ. And Paul even invites them to devote themselves to prayer. This is at the, at the close. He, he even 
invites them to pray for him. So as we come across this at the opening of of the letter, the natural question I want to ask is, who is God putting in your mind, laying on your heart to pray for? Will you do that today? Will you do that this week as as the Holy Spirit brings them to mind? Well, maybe one reason Paul is so prayerful is that he actually couldn't meet them in person because Paul was in prison or he was under house arrest at this point for you know, all of his activities related to you know, preaching the gospel around the Roman world. And uh, he was hearing of their faith through Epaphras. And Christianity at this point was spreading via word of mouth. People were taking the message of the gospel to the surrounding areas where Paul had established churches throughout the Mediterranean world. And uh, I, I just love this. This is actually a whole letter in the Bible, you know, is there as a result of this person that we really know nothing about who was sent out and went to the town of Colossae, met people, doors opened, shared his faith in Christ, lived with them, lived the way of Jesus, and suddenly there's this church, this group of people uh, who know Christ, who are living this out in their everyday life. And uh, it's always tempting because this is actually discipleship. We think of discipleship as like, this: we just need to get a bigger brain. You know, we just need to suck in all of the Christian information that we can get in there, and that's what it means to be a disciple. Well, that's a piece of it, but living the way of Jesus and actually helping others in that journey is what discipleship truly is. And so we often are tempted to let paid professional Christians like myself, or in this case, like the Apostle Paul, we're often tempted to let them do the ministry. But that's not the way of Jesus. Jesus himself, early on, before anybody had been to seminary, actually sent them out by sent the 72 out into the surrounding countryside to proclaim the gospel. And when he proclaimed the gospel, Jesus didn't like send a a horde of carrier pigeons with leaflets to drop on surrounding villages, did he? He didn't start with a radio blitz or TV ads or social media campaign or this other, you know. It wasn't about information, He actually sent people. And those people went to those villages and they lived with others. Tell me that's not intimidating. But that's the way of Jesus. We're so tempted when we think of good news, we hear news in in the terms of like news. The people of this era would have had no concept for that. News was shared person to person, mouth to mouth. That's how it spread. What would our world look like if we went back to that model? Huh? Uh, you know, a, a couple years ago, actually, I've, I've since transgressed on this, but I gave up reading the news for, as a Lenten fast. I think that was during 2021. And it was so awesome at the end of Lent that I, I don't think I started until like a couple months ago. It's like my life 
is better when I'm just not in this. But good news is shared from person to person, life to life. And so the town of Colossae, it was located on a major river in a very mountainous region of what's now Turkey. It's not far from two other New Testament towns that are mentioned in this letter and also in Acts, Laodicea and Hierapolis. And someday, if I ever go to Turkey, I'm going to actually visit Hierapolis because it looks like they have really cool, like, I don't know, mineral springs and hot tubs and stuff like that. Not hot tubs, but natural, like geothermic action. It's a beautiful area, incredible. And this whole region was known throughout the Mediterranean for textiles. They made high-quality wool cloth. In fact, scholars believe that each town, Colossae, Laodicea, Hierapolis, they each had their own trademark color. And they're pretty certain that Colossae was pink, <laughs> pink wool. I just, I just think of like pink Roman togas. Did they make those in wool? I'm not sure. But this was a very uh, productive area. Uh, I, I'm assuming there was you know, some wealth. Uh, all of this trade happened up and down the, the river, also by a major trade route that went through Col- Colossae to Ephesus. And Ephesus was on the, on the sea. It's about 100 miles away. And so the people who lived in Colossae were, were thoroughly Greek. They were thoroughly Roman. But there was also a significant Jewish population there as well. And the interesting fact, or tidbit, is that scholars think that this Jewish population wasn't part of the faithful remnant that came back and like recolonized Judea. They were the ones who actually stayed in Babylon. And as a reward, the king of Babylon allowed them to relocate to the frontiers of Turkey at the time and populate this area. Well, the reason why this is so, so important for us as we read this letter, it's background. Um, the religious climate in Colossae was this weird mix of Jewish and Greco-Roman beliefs. There were hierarchies of angels and demons and gods. Uh, they're the powers and the principalities or the elemental spiritual forces that Paul will write about later in the letter. And so these spiritual forces, uh, they were believed by the populace to be responsible for everything from light and darkness to fertility and their health. I mean, they were responsible for everything. There was a demon or a god or an angel that was, was having dominion over all of these different aspects of their life. And you better not displease them in any way. And so Paul's writing to kind of solidify a few things. He wants them to know, to understand the true identity of the person they've received as their Lord. And so after his opening remarks, he kind of turns the page towards critical subject matter, King Jesus. And so in chapter 1, verse 15 through 23, we'll put this on the screen for you, uh, there's this poem or this hymn about Jesus that appears. And this is one of the first creedal statements, Uh, this would have been something that the early church would have memorized and just known. Uh, It's one of the first kind of creedal statements of the early church, and it's all about Jesus. And the purpose of this hymn is to make one thing clear. Jesus is supreme. Let's read it. Verse 15, the Son is the image of the invisible God. 
the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things on heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. It's a little more poetic in Greek. Okay. But you see the imagery. You see the metaphors. You see what he's trying to communicate. It's a magnificent poem. And it's full of echoes from the Old Testament, really, from Genesis 1, from Psalm 2, from Psalm 6, or Psalm 8, Psalm 68, Exodus 40, Proverbs 8. Many biblical scholars find lots of layers here in the Old Testament. In fact, as a devotional activity, something else you could do this week is just read through this and try putting it in your own words. Maybe pull out a journal and and rewrite it in your own words. What this is saying about Jesus, how it connects to you. Um, Essentially, this poem is working through all the relevant meanings for one Hebrew word. It's the Hebrew word for head. Head. You know, even in English, you know, we use head as like, oh, that's where our brain is on our body. But head could also be the head of a a river. It's the source of a river. Head could mean like uh, you're the head of a company or the head of state. And so this poem is working through these different Hebrew meanings for head. And it's pertinent to people in Colossae because with all the local superstitions, all the deities that would have been around there, uh, it would have been tempting to see Jesus just as another spirit who kind of bridged the, the gap between God and humans. Oh, good. We've got one to bridge this gap. And Paul emphatically says otherwise. No, Jesus is the, is the supreme commander-in-chief of the universe. Don't you forget it. I mean, you look through here, how many times has he mentioned the words all things, all things, all things, all things? And he starts by saying Jesus is the firstborn. And the mistake is to assume that this means Jesus was created. Uh, In my 20s, I lived in Chicago. I was doing uh, undergrad and graduate school at the time. And so I, I met people from everywhere in the world. And I was fortunate to have a couple of Muslim friends. And uh, I knew them well enough that we could talk about this uh, actually in a really friendly and like interesting way. And they would hear this like firstborn, or they would hear John 3.16, you know, that Jesus begot, that he was the begotten son. Well, he's a son. That means he was created. You know, he was born uh, from a human being. How can he be God? And this isn't saying that Jesus uh, was created. Being firstborn in the Jewish mindset denotes priority and supremacy. First, priority in time. It means that Jesus existed before time began. 
And the last time I checked, only God existed before time began. So that's kind of a bold statement. It also means he has firstborn rank. You know, there are no other spiritual beings that outrank Jesus. In Jewish thought, the firstborn was the heir, meaning that son always received all the rights, all the privileges, all the responsibilities of the father in that family. And so one biblical commentator put it this way, Christ is God's representative and heir and has all the management over the divine household. That's what Paul's trying to communicate. It's like royal status. He's Lord of creation. And you'll notice that it doesn't say he was made in God's image, like Genesis says about human beings, that we're made in God's image. It says that Jesus is the image. Subtle, but significant difference. We can't see God, however, by looking at Jesus we can discover who God is. We can discover that he's creative, that he's powerful, that he speaks worlds into existence, but he's also personal, filled with compassion, present in our life, loving, willing to forgive. You know, in Jesus, the full character and purpose of God is embodied in a human being. Then Paul moves on. He says, Jesus isn't just the firstborn, he's supreme. He's saying like, Jesus is before all things. That he's, a, that he's at the head. He's the beginning, the source through which God created everything. And finally, he mentions that Jesus is the head, the firstborn among the dead, the head of the church, the body. And theologian N.T. Wright summarizes this poem by saying it this way. He says, as the head of the body, the church, as the first to rise again from the dead, as the one through whose cruel death God has dealt with our sins and brought us to peace and reconciliation, and above all, as the one through whom the new creation has now begun. In all these ways, Jesus himself is the one in whom we're called to discover what true humanness means in practice. So through all of this, Paul's trying to communicate one overarching theme. Jesus is the key to our very existence. He's the center of the cosmos. And only when you put him at the center of your life do things change. Long time ago, I was involved in young life. We used to have this saying that you have to give Jesus the wheel of your life. And of course, there's also a, you know, a former country music hit <clears throat> that almost ruined that metaphor. Jesus, take the wheel. Okay. It's a great metaphor because Jesus is a horrible passenger. Jesus wants to drive. He wants to be in charge. He doesn't want to drive from the back seat either. So when we say that we've put our faith in Jesus, that we've made him the leader of our life, this is what it means. We give him the wheel. And why this is important in our own everyday lives is that even though we sit here 2,000 years later, uh, we're kind of similar to the Colossians. We've never met the Apostle Paul face-to-face -face or in person. 
And we have a ton of cultural pressures on us from all different angles that tempt us not to allow God to lead our life, that interfere, that distort, that that serve as noise for us being able to hear God's voice and figure out what to do with it. And so hearing these words, reading this chapter, will remind us too who we are. We're children of God. We're brothers and sisters in one family. And we belong to King Jesus. He's the head. He's the king. He's supreme. He's in charge. He's uh, our priority. He is the image of the invisible God. And so as we walk through, you know, we'll head out these doors and head on our way on our 4th of July weekend. Let's remember that this week. Whose we are, who we belong to, we belong to King Jesus. And he is our all in all. Amen? Amen. Please join me in prayer. Lord, thank you. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for this gift of... um, poetry, really, in the New Testament. And help us to remember that Jesus isn't just among other gods. He is the Almighty God. You are the Almighty God. And through Jesus, we're able to see you. Through Jesus, we're able to know you. We are so grateful, Lord, for the new life that we can discover in him. Amen. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.